This is Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, Episode 77. Today, our special guest is Dr. Linda Scott. Dr. Scott is a recent recipient of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Pioneering Spirit Award for her scientific work on nurse fatigue and its impact on patient safety. During our interview, Dr. Scott shares what her research has revealed, as well as some strategies to combat fatigue and sleep deprivation. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Hi, healthcare leaders. I'm Tracy Christofferson. And I'm Michelle Trosett. We're your hosts for Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast, and we are so grateful you joined us today. You're about to see healthcare problems and challenges through a brand new lens and take your leadership to a whole new level with this podcast. We've coached healthcare leaders from across North America for over 30 years as they strive to establish healthy healing organizations and thriving work cultures. This is the only podcast that shows healthcare leaders how to apply polarity thinking, the missing logic in healthcare, to their reoccurring challenges so they can stop wasting time, money, and resources on fixes that fail. If you want to create a healthy healing organization where staff and leaders thrive and perform at their highest level, where values are aligned, outcomes are sustainable, and the highest quality of care is delivered, then this podcast is for you. Keep listening. Each week, you're going to learn how to leverage a polarity mindset and manage competing priorities as we use a polarity lens to explore everyday challenges with the leaders who are striving to manage them. We're thrilled you're here. Hello, it's Michelle. And Tracy. And the pair is back together again. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are in the studio of Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. Yes, and uh, we just had a phenomenal interview with Dean Linda D. Scott. Yes. Yeah, it was just fascinating. It was just so enlightening and interesting and, yeah, changing, life-changing, right, for some. Yeah. Yeah. And for some organizations, it could be too, right? Yeah. I always love having people on the podcast that, you know, they're just near and dear. They've been a significant part of your past. And Linda's one of those people. We kind of go way back. Uh, we both met at Grand Valley State University here at West Michigan. She was she actually did the stats for my master's thesis. So I was calling her quite frequently. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you were. Bet yes, you were. yes. Yeah. And then we were both uh, Grand Valley State University uh, Distinguished Alumni of the Year, and we were able to go to each other's celebration. And it's been fun watching her career just just evolve over the years and her work evolve. And to have her on our podcast was just really an honor today. Yeah, and she's just a lovely person, and she's doing some phenomenal research around sleep deprivation and fatigue in nurses. Yeah, and you're going to learn all about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let us tell you a little bit about Linda. Linda D. Scott is Dean and Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. As a leading scholar in sleep and health services research, her research on workforce issues has influenced the direction of health policy formation as the nation struggles to provide patient-centered quality health care amidst a significant nursing workforce shortage. Dr. Scott continues to examine human factors that adversely affect patient outcomes and the use of fatigue countermeasures in healthcare to maximize patient and nurse safety. 
Her most recent work, which describes the effects of sleep loss and fatigue on cognitive function and clinical decision-making, informed position papers by both the American Nurses Association and the American Academy of Nursing on the need to mitigate nurse fatigue and adverse patient outcomes while maximizing provider well-being. Additionally, Dr. Scott has developed and implemented programs focused on economically disadvantaged students, including racial and ethnic minorities. She has led diversity efforts across academic degrees and curriculum, such as the implementation of holistic admissions review, a strategy to enhance the diversity of the nursing workforce and improve patient outcomes by having a nursing profession that mirrors the population in which it serves. Wow. Yeah. We got to have her come back for that. Oh, yes, we do. Yeah. So, Linda, you know, we'll be knocking on your door again soon. But in the meantime, here's Dr. Scott and all her research and work related to sleep. So, welcome, Linda. We're so excited to have you on our podcast today. Thank you for accepting our invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you bet. So Tracy and I, we like to start all of our podcast episodes with some fun banter. And, you know, we've been following you for a while, Linda. (laughs) And uh, you started out, um, you've been kind of making your way around the Big Lake, Michigan in your career. You started out in West Michigan, which is where you and I met. And then you went to Illinois and now you're in Wisconsin. So we're kind of really curious to know what side of the lake do you like living on? And what's so great about the Midwest that you stick around? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny. My mother would say, that I wanted a degree from every university in Michigan. And now she says that I'm trying to um, find my way around the entire lake. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but, I, but I would say in my travels that I am really, truly a Midwesterner. I like living in the Midwest. I like the people. I like the places. I like the diversity of cultures. Um, I And I think the lake is beautiful. So I've been around at least three sides, but, you know, I like the four seasons, but there's one season that I could do without. And so you won't find me on the upper top of Lake Michigan. <laughs> um, too, too cold, too much snow. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. But I actually lived there for a while. It is. It's cold and snowy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're big fans of Lake Michigan as well. We love Lake Michigan. So I think it's great. It's been really fun watching you make that circle. (laughs) Uh, Well, Linda, we wanted to start out, first of all, and just um, really shout out to you a big congratulations. You were recently awarded the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, otherwise known as AACN, their Pioneering Spirit Award. And this recognition was due to your pioneering scientific work on nurse fatigue and its impact on patient safety. And we just think that's awesome. And we want to congratulate you for that, that pioneering award. Well, thank you very much. You know, I feel very honored um, to be recognized um, by ACM for my research. You know, as a nurse, it's always my goal to make a difference you know, as a clinician, and then as an educator, administrator, and now as a researcher. So to be a part of research that really is meaningful, that has an impact on our profession and our patients and and the public, I'm very humbled and honored to receive this recognition. Yeah, I just got goosebumps all over my body. (laughs) Yeah, Because really what you're saying is so, it's just... 
it is humbling. I can just imagine it's be so rewarding to have your research recognized and, um, you know, put into practice. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping happens with mine. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so tell us and our listeners what planted the seed for you to embark on such important and really innovative research well it started a number of years ago when the 1999 publication of the institute of medicine report came out to air as human and that report described um, almost 100,000 deaths that occurred um, due to preventable error. And at that time, we had anecdotal evidence about nurse work hours, but we didn't really know um, how many hours nurses worked and what that relationship was to error, to, um, to making errors. And so that's how we first started. Um, we conducted uh, two large studies where we ended up with uh, information on more than 11,000 shifts where we did identify that nurses worked long shifts um, with overtime occurring on a regular basis and that the risk for error tripled when nurses worked more than 12 hours and that they doubled when they worked overtime beyond any shift. I think what, what really also surprised us about our findings was that we also found that errors increased when, when nurses had insufficient sleep. And so mm-hmm. let me just share, share this with you. You know, as adults, um, we require eight to nine hours of sleep each day, but yet we found that 20% of the nurses in this study um, slept less than six hours and that there were nurses who didn't sleep at all within the 24 hours. Uh, prior to their work shift. So it w- that was frightening. And yeah. it was these results that said, we really need to look further into work-related fatigue and sleep loss among nurses and the, the impact on patient safety. Wow. Wow, I can't, well, I, I used to be a critical care nurse working those crazy hours. Oh, yeah. And, um, but going 24 hours without sleep and then working? Mm-hmm. Now, were working. some of them night shifters? Yes, yeah, some were night shift, um, which was is a whole other issue. So thinking about the amount of time that they were awake, then trying to sleep, and then going working, and mm-hmm. most likely a 12-hour shift. Mm-hmm. And so that was a problem, so not having any sleep before then. Um, but I would also say it's a problem because when people are awake for a consecutive number of hours, you see some of the same neurobiobehavioral effects that you see with intoxication. Uh-huh. So when you're awake for 15 more hours or mm-hmm. more, mm-hmm. it's similar to having a blood alcohol level of 0.05. Mm-hmm. And if you're awake for 24 consecutive hours or more, it's similar to having a blood alcohol of 0.1. So now we're impaired to operate a motor um, vehicle at, you know, at a level of 0.08. But now we have individuals who now are practicing with that level of uh, prolonged wakeful periods, um, which put the, puts patients at themselves and their patients at risk. Yeah, yeah. Well, I asked that question because I used to work nights. And I, I remember a number of, you know, there'd be days where I didn't sleep at all, you know, because by the time 
I got home, right? Get the kid off to school, right? Do the things you needed to do. They get home from school, like then you're all day without, you know, sleeping. So as a respiratory therapist, I'm not a nurse, but I dealt with the same kind of thing. So that's why I asked about that. Right. And I think our findings are applicable to other professions, such as, as respiratory therapy. Anytime when we're talking about shift work or prolonged hours or just in general, I mean, we're in a 24-7 society mm-hmm. and really beginning to think about um, how sleep in, is indeed an a important physiologic um, factor that we, I mean, just like water and food, we need sleep. And so every time we lose it, um, we jeopardize our own health yeah, and yeah. the health of others. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, you conducted a study of over 600 critical care nurses on personal and work-related data like sleep quality, daytime sleepiness, uh, sleep quantity, clinical decision, uh, self-efficacy, and decision regret. Um, Can you share with our listeners a summary of some of those kind of key findings related to those aspects? Sure. Um, Thank you for that question. Like our previous studies, We found a significant amount of fatigue impairment and sleep deprivation among critical care nurses. In fact, almost three-quarters of the nurses reported poor sleep quality and obtained insufficient amount of sleep. So in a five-day period, one should have 40 hours of sleep. 50% of these nurses had at least an eight-hour deficit, what we would call a sleep debt, Um, and then... um, just under 10% had a sleep debt of more than 24 hours. So you think that in, within a five-day period, yeah. they had lost that much sleep. You know, I would tell uh, my students when I talked about sleep and sleep deprivation, you know, just because you have checks doesn't mean you have money in the bank. The same is true with sleep. You just can't make up for it. You know, you've now created this sleep debt that you can't get back once you lose it. Yeah. Oh, that's a great way to think about it. That is. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah. So in addition, we also found that nurses um, who reported more acute fatigue, daytime sleepiness, poor sleep quality, and an insufficient amount of time to recover between shifts, they were more likely to make decisions that they regretted. And so by the time we looked at predictors, we found that being male, working 12 hours or more, or, or being dissatisfied with the decision, you're more likely to regret the decision that you made. Mm. So you referred to decision regret, you know, in the study, and you just you just mentioned that they're, they're more likely to regret the decision. Can you peel a little bit more back about decision regret? That, that was a new word for me when I read your uh, research. Sure. Um, decision regret is a decision that one makes and the emotional response to that decision when the outcome of the decision could have been or been better or improved if, um, if you had made a different decision. And if, if, let me give you a couple of the, or some of the examples of, of the, the errors, and you can see why um, decision regret was there 
and the emotional response that went along with it, um, the stress, the shame, um, feelings of guilt, helplessness. So there were six areas. There was failure to adhere to standards of practice, failure to advocate for your patient, failure to um, ensure patient safety, failure to communicate in a professional manner. Uh, the other two areas were where individuals um, failed to um, have the cognitive function needed to make a decision, or they also had inappropriate affective responses. So they, they were angry, they were overwhelmed, they, um, uh, were, uh, they intimidated mm-hmm. their, other, their coworkers. So you can see, so if one, if decisions fell into those categories and then you think back to that decision, why you would regret what you you had done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like a ripple effect. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Uh. Well, and you talked about um, clinician well-being. Um, This is one of those things that if the more you experience decisional regret, the more likely it is that you can experience burnout and turnover and why someone then might not want to continue to, to engage in their practice. Right. Right. And so that's a, that's both a personal well-being issue and a professional, professional well-being issue, right? So mm-hmm. sleep impacts both and those yeah. decision regrets can impact both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, while your studies have been focused on nursing um, do you, is there any research or any studies that are looking at fatigue impact on other health professions? I mean, I know we just talked about how, right, some of this certainly would be applicable to respiratory therapy, but um, are there other experiences you've had around, you know, other professions or other studies that are looking at that? Yes, there are other studies that, of course, are looking at um, physicians, um, Providers predominantly, it's been mostly with physicians, but it is still not looking at other ancillary um, staff. We also have seen it in research in other safety critical professions. So if you think oh. about police officers, um, um, fire, um, all the ones again where um, there may be shift work or it requires that level of critical thinking and decision-making. Um, so we're seeing study, studies in that um, arena as well. Okay. That makes sense. Well, yeah. 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 I, I, you know, any kind of shift work, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, and especially if you're working those long shifts, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Yes. And, and yeah. that would make sense for like firemen and mm-hmm. EMTs as well, right? They tend to yeah. work a very long stretch. Mm-hmm. Well, and also think about the industrial sector, Um, you know, so now where you have um, individuals who, again, are working extended hours, working night shifts, um, approximately 70% of the accidents that occur in the industrial sector are are because of work-related fatigue. Mm -hmm. The same is true that we see with tired truck drivers or even the airline industry, you know, where, Mm -hmm. but... The difference is there are hours of service regulations that oversee and try to uh, limit the number of hours there. We don't have that same um, translation into the health professions. 
Very true. We've sat on many airplane tarmacs <laughs> waiting for the call that they can't go on because they've overextended their hours. And you're right, we don't have that in healthcare. No, as a matter of fact, we're calling everybody to get a warm body in. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> right? Anybody come right. in? They're not asking, did you sleep last night? And <laughs> right? How how uh, how prepared are you? Right? It's just like we need somebody in here. So I think this is just opening up the understanding of how significant these long shifts are and working multiple shifts in a row and overtime and all that can, you know, really impact it. Yes. Well, and Tracy, you make a good point. In Australia, they have a reciprocal responsibility model between their um, employers versus their um, their nurses. And, and so there's a partnership where nurses have the responsibility to come fit for duty. And if there was a reasonable justification for them not, them not to be fit for duty, the employer has the responsibility either to, to have them work in a different area or to have them not work at all. That is not something that we have um, in place in the United States. And in fact, we tried to see if we could use their um, data uh, module to see with ours and our ner- the work hours were so bad that we could not even um, try to use their model with ours. So it was it was not something we could put in place, um, at least to do an analysis on what we had to see if it would be something we could implement in the United States. Oh, wow. Wow. Man, do you plan to extend this study to other health professions or... Like could 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 it be replicated? Oh, um, or it, by it, another group. Yes, um, our studies um, are transferable to other health professions and um, could be replicated in other health professions as well as in um, non-health professions. Um, I, so I think that's very doable, um, given my. Um, current responsibilities and time commitments. I'm more of a, in a consultative role with other research studies, as well as helping to guide some of our students. And for me, that's my own um, fatigue management strategy. <laughs> I can't, you know, I, I don't think that I would be able to do that, but, yeah. but I do think the work can be, um, will serve as a great catalyst for other studies. Well, and I think that's, that's key, right? Yeah. It's critical because yeah. I'm sure uh, there would be others that would, would also be interested in what this means for the different professions, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a landmark study that yeah. others can build on for sure. Exactly. And now I think with all the focus on clinician well-being, even more so now, I mean, I could see a lot of implications for your research and looking at other mm-hmm. professions, other areas. Yeah, a lot mm-hmm. to be learned. Right. Well, there's other, a couple other recommendations that have been made in the industrial sector that I think reflect nursing. So, for example, working 12 or more consecutive hours is not recommended for employees who spend the majority time on their feet, where there are staff shortages, where there is exposure to chemicals, or where the workforce contains a large number of single parents. And then, likewise, they're not recommended when time between shifts do not allow for sufficient commuting time, adequate recovery sleep, or time to take um, care of personal responsibilities. 
that's applicable to nursing, but it's also applicable to the other health professions. So if we can identify those recommendations um, in other sectors, we really need to start to pull that together to help us to inform what we do, what we do in the healthcare sector. Well, it's kind of just like we did with airline safety, right? Like when you look at airline safety mm-hmm. and the significant impact that has been having in healthcare for, you know, for safety um, as well. So this is kind of like, to me, that's where my mind goes when yeah. I hear what you're talking yeah. about in other industries and these standards that they're putting in place around, you know, these types of things. So Yeah, safety checks yep. and things that mm-hmm. weren't there before, but they are now. And- right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yep. Hey, borrow from others, right? I mean, if it's working and it's applicable, yeah, you should do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yet that's been also one of our challenges. And I think that's where um, one of, when you think about organizations and uh, the role that they have in fatigue management, um, most of their human resources policies go totally against what we need to do. For fatigue management um, and or the use of fatigue countermeasures within um, healthcare organizations. We still have um, human resource policies in place that says that if someone is um, sleeping at work, those are grounds for dismissal. But we also know that as a fatigue countermeasure, strategic naps, a way to break up those consecutive wake hours, is an effective fatigue countermeasure. So being able to move um, what we know from the industrial sector into healthcare is is vital, but we we haven't managed to do that yet. Yeah, and isn't it something that we're a profession um, in healthcare in general is all about evidence-based practice, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and we have a hard time implementing the evidence, you know, if it means major change. Well, we're rooted. We're rooted in old thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> exactly. We, we did one study that tested the feasibility of a fatigue countermeasure program in three hospitals. All three hospitals saw improvement in, um, in nurse work hours and there's their alertness, um, their ability to be more vigilant, uh, reduction in errors, less um, episodes of drowsy driving. And as soon as the, the study was done, they re-implemented their, their human resource policies to, that um, did not allow for stri- um, strategic naps at work. See, and to me, yeah. that's a deep-rooted belief. Yeah. Right? There's a deep-rooted belief, like you said earlier, right? If you're mm-hmm. sleeping at work, it's grounds for dismissal. It's not professional. It's, right? And that's, that's like a deeply-rooted belief or value of the organization, Mm-hmm. And until you can flip that, change that belief and help right mm-hmm. help them yep. to to create a value of equal measure, right? For mm-hmm. the health and well being of the employee and the patients they care for, right? You gotta kinda yeah. help them to see that counter to that to, to get them to change that value, that belief. Yeah. Exactly. And move away from their fear of what could happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, or as Michelle said, use the evidence, number one, to show that we, we need to interrupt those consecutive wake hours, that people need respite from the work, that it really does enhance 
alertness and vigilance and therefore the quality of care rather than seeing it as a punishment, you know, where individuals don't take breaks nor, nor you know, again, they're awake for so long that now um, they're, they're putting everyone at risk instead of having a, an environment that really supports healthy practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, Linda, based on our years of experience, you know, we've identified and we just were sort of talking about it, that clinician safety and patient safety, they're interdependent, right? They're, they're two uh, value pairs that um, they really need to go together to really experience that quality care. Uh, and we know that both have to be strong in organizations, Um if we really want clinicians to give the best care possible and patients to receive the best care possible. And your study demonstrates that one, you know, one really important action that leads to keeping both nurses and patients safe, and that is making sure that nurses have adequate sleep. So can you share how the work you've done now for decades has revealed the interdependency between nurse safety and patient safety? How would you describe that? Well, thank you for that, Michelle. I think one of the things that we we know that's a fact is that nurses have been consistently identified as the profession with the highest level of trust among um, the public. We also know that the public should reasonably expect that their nurses are fit for duty. And then likewise, as a profession, we have an ethical and professional mandate um, to provide quality care. And as a profession, we have a social mandate um, to protect the public. But yet, fatigued nurses put their patients at risk. For every hour of sleep that's lost, the risk for making an error increases by 7%. So somehow or another, we need to help nurses to um, have sufficient sleep prior to their practice. So I think that's, that's one of the first things that I would talk about. I think another example is the issue of 12-hour shifts themselves. Um, the primary reason we put them in place was to decrease the number of handoffs um, between um, mm-hmm. patients and the number of faces that, um, or hands that touch the patient. But yet they've also created um, challenges for nurse and patient safety. So we talked about earlier, again, about those consecutive wake hours. You know, so if you think about a 12-hour shift and then you allow for an hour commute time before and after a shift, so now we're um, at 14 hours. Oh, and uh, if overtime is as uh, consistent as what we've seen, you add at least another hour. So now we're at... um, 15 hours, okay, then if there's any responsibility that they have at home prior to that, you know, we're really are past that um, 15 hours, getting close to that 20 hours of consecutive wait time. So I think that having recognition of that and, you know, and really wanting to support the nurse-patient um, relationship both from a care perspective, but from a quality perspective, that they are so related, and yet we need to make sure that we don't jeopardize it. Right, right, right. Well, I think that one study that you were talking about earlier about the three hospitals, you know, it demonstrated the positive outcomes when you put those mm-hmm. things in place, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes. yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and the and the... The 
data too that shows the increase in errors that can happen, which then yeah. impacts patients, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we tend to focus on on nurse patient ratios, and we think that is a key to quality care. But you know, if you ha- you can have one to one nurse patient ratio, and if you have a fatigued nurse, you still have the same problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really it's really a trilogy that we have to look at. Um, and it's just not just one, one aspect. Yeah. That's what I was just thinking too, mm-hmm. that it's, it's more than just one thing, right? Which it usually is because <laughs> we work in complex environments, right? right. Um, and we've talked a little bit, you know, Linda, yeah. about just, you know, the different ways to combat sleep disturbances and fatigue at the individual nurse level at the healthcare organization, but just kind of, Let's just wrap it all up like into one, you know, list here of action steps that can be taken. Um, And why don't you start like individually? What can individuals do to combat fatigue and sleep deprivation? And then what's the responsibility of the organization? Well, and let me just say, I think both individual and organization need to recognize the negative consequences associated with sleep deprivation and the impact of uh, fatigue impairment. So I think there's got to be recognition on both sides. Yes. So at the individual, yes, they definitely need to understand the importance of sleep, and they need to implement their own personal fatigue management plan. So there are strategies that they can do at home, but then there's also strategies that they can do in, in um, regards to work. So establishing healthy sleep habits. Um, you know, that include um, protecting your sleep time, getting sufficient sleep, having a sleep environment that's conducive um, to sleeping, um, to avoid exercise and alcohol prior to going to sleep. So those are some really good strategies that they, they could do. Um, avoiding extended work hours, you know, at, at all possible. And if you do them, get sufficient sleep before and finding ways to interrupt those consecutive hours later. Um, avoiding um, shift rotations. You know, that really impacts one's circadian rhythm, mm-hmm. you know, when you rotate forward and then you rotate back. Um, so that results in um, sleep disturbances. And then I would say to engage in fatigue countermeasures. I mean, there are a set of fatigue countermeasures that an individual can do, Um um, we talked about uh, breaks. We found that most nurses will not um, completely give up their responsibilities for a break. You know, they're, they're afraid to or feel guilty about someone else taking care of their patients, even for a short period of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we're coaching somebody around that right we now. Are. <laughs> we are. <laughs> we might have to have her listen to this. <laughs> I know. And then, then there is the issue of naps. Um, some people will say, well, I can't take a nap, you know. Um, it's really hard for me to fall asleep. But if you take advantage of two circadian windows that you have, you have a strong drive to sleep between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., as well as 2 p.m., and 5 p.m. So using that to your advantage to, to take a nap, but also being mindful that a nap should not exceed 30 minutes. If you sleep longer than that um, and not get into a, a realm of sleep that is really restful, you actually wake up more groggy 
and feel feel more fatigued than you were before the nap. That's what's called sleep inertia. So you want to be mindful of that. And then I have to ask you, okay, do you are you do you drink caffeinated beverages? Yes. Yes. Okay. And do you drink a cup of coffee when you first get up? Yes. Yes. Okay. Worst time of day to actually have um, caffeine as a fatigue countermeasure. Because if you think about it, if you had sufficient sleep at night, you should be alert in the morning and should not need caffeine for an alerting effect. And if you get to the point where now you can't use caffeine therapeutically, you've developed a tolerance to it, um, it won't work for you for a fatigue countermeasure. You know, so you don't want to drink a caffeinated beverage when you first get up, um, close to bedtime, or during social events. You want to be able to use caffeine um, really for its alerting effect. So, so think about that. Are you telling me I can't have my coffee? (laughs) I know it. Are you telling me I can't have my coffee in the morning? (laughs) I think that makes perfect sense. Yes. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I think it's just habit. I don't yeah. really think I use it to alert, to be alert. I use it as, it's just a it's habit. It's a habit, it is. Right, you know, it I have a couple yeah. habits in the morning, right? <laughs> Brush your teeth, well, have my coffee, <laughs> go yeah. to the bathroom. <laughs> well, and I have to tell you, I had that same habit. I still have that same habit, except I decaffeinated myself, um, I think, since 2003. So I still drink a couple cups of coffee in the morning, um, but it's, decaf and if you could really um, move your way yourself away from from it at it can then really be a good um, fatigue countermeasure for you and, and um, be there so, when you need it an intervention when you need it yeah exactly <laughs> so right. I, I would I would at the individual level thinking about ways um, that not only managing fatigue but also being able to intervene if needed. You know, I, I mentioned about the issue of drowsy driving. Um, one of the things, you know, that people do, especially when they're driving home from work, you know, if you're rolling down the window, turning up the radio, hanging your head out the window, uh, one, you're too, too sleepy, too fatigued to drive. But if you can use um, caffeine as a, a fatigue countermeasure, you know, drinking a cup of coffee, it, it will be on board within 30 minutes. You're safer. If you can take a nap right after you drink it, even better. That, that gives you at least up to two hours of an alerting effect. So, so I would recommend individuals try that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so, I've been there, but, done that. Oh, yeah. I have too. Oh, I have too. Scary stuff. What? Anything about and it. And I'm all about the naps now, Linda. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Taking my 20. Taking my 20. <laughs> well, and speaking of naps, what the organization needs to do is not only put fatigue management um, programs in place, but they need to find ways where individuals can do strategic naps at work. Um, again, we've, we've found that it's feasible, um, but not only did nurses um, stop doing them because they reinstituted human resource policies, but they also felt guilty because, you know, when they tried to take a nap, if they heard um, their coworkers, you know, being busy or if something, you know, was going on on the unit, they, they felt like it was not something that they could, they could continue to do. So they, they continued to do the personal uh, fatigue management strategies 
but they stopped doing some of the strategies at work. So organizationally, we really need to figure out how, how to support that. It's a culture uh, thing. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. a culture mm-hmm. culture shift, I think, yes. that would have to happen, right? And then the thing that runs through my mind is, so I get it, you know, I mean, I, I can see how this would be a little bit challenging, right, to take on um, from an organization perspective. And how, how do you hold people accountable at the individual level? To do the things they need to do, right? Because it is both and, to your point, right? There's the individual responsibility, accountability, and measures to be taken and organizational. Um, and when it's something this personal, mm-hmm. when you go to bed, like if you take taken, like, you know, those kinds of things are very personal to individuals. So it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to come to this place where you're both doing what you need to do, right? So I can see how this would be a little bit how significant it is and important it is, but yet I can see the challenges around it. Yet Australia figured it out. Yeah. So somehow or another, we can get there. We just have to decide at what point in time that we partner to do this. And it's not just about me and it's not just about the organization, but it's about the patients that are in our care. And it's about the public who also needs to be protected from that from a drowsy driver, you know, who now is too fatigued to drive home safely, you know. So we need to think about how we can get there and not let the barriers get in our way to doing what we know is right. Yeah, Yeah. it's an equal accountability. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, there's a couple things there, right? It's about uh, common greater purpose, Mm -hmm. right, and being driven by that common greater purpose, Mm -hmm. right, of the safety of the members in our community, the patients we serve. And then you said something that struck me as you said, we just have, we have to decide, right? It's about, it's about deciding this is who we will be as an organization. This is what we stand for. And, uh, and if you want to work here, this is who we are. And as a part of the organization, yep, yep. right, this is who you are. And it's it's that, you know, really drawing the line in the sand and say we're committed, right? It's deciding and committing to something that's in, for the best interest of the organization, the people that work there, and the community that's served. I agree. You know, I've had um, nurses say that I engaged in this research because I wanted to eliminate 12-hour shifts. No, that was not my goal. My my goal was, if we're going to do them, let's figure out how to do them safely. Yeah, I don't think that they're the best thing to do, but that wasn't my my intent. My intent was to find out what was happening and and how we need to intervene to do them safely. Organizations would say, "Well, we can't eliminate twelve hour shifts because now we'll lose our nursing staff." Well. Not necessarily, because if you actually look at some of the nurses who actually have been in accidents or who have actually um, uh, have decision regret or actually um, may have significantly injured or even unfortunately killed a patient because of an error that was made. Now, we've lost that individual to practice, you know, so why not, you know, come and figure out strategically how we can we can live our values and our intent for our mission, vision, and goals of an institution is really more important than worrying about whether or not you lose um, some of your staff because of, of you're no longer having 
extended work hours. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. again, they're being driven by fear, fears, yeah, fears, fears, and old thinking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I think it's a great challenge to put out there. Yeah, I think this is fascinating. It I am is. just so glad that you've been here today to share this with us because yeah. I think it's so needed. So needed. Lastly, we have one more question for you, Linda. Um, (laughs) In what ways has your research impacted policy changes to support nurse rest, you know, better fatigue management? You know, how have you brought it to the policy level? Sure. Thank you for that. Um, I think probably where we've seen it the most is in the Institute of Medicine reports, um, particularly the second one that is um, keeping patients safe, transforming Mm -hmm. the work environment of nurses. I think that was a key document that was used um, and used our our data to help support its recommendations. We've also seen it at uh, professional and public uh, service organizations where a number of position papers have used our work. And and where I thought we might actually see some movement was when Joint Commission actually recognized fatigue, impairment as a sentinel event. So I'm really hoping that um, that will help organizations um, move, may not move as quickly as we would like, but I, I think that the more we continue to provide the evidence, um, the the better we'll be to moving the, the the sleep deprivation, the fatigue impairment, the nurse and patient safety needle forward. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, uh, I learned a lot. I did too. I really did. I think I'm ready for a nap. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're getting close. Well, you are. We're in that 2 to 5 p.m. window. I know. Time. We are. I know. Well, you know, and I have found too, and I don't know if this is um, if this is because of not sleeping well at night, although I don't think it's, you know, I go to bed at the same time every night. Like I've got a pattern, right, around mm-hmm. my sleep. So I do really, and I get up at the same time every day. So I've got a rhythm around that. But there are sometimes in the morning, even before noon, where I'll feel like I really need a nap, you know, and I'll just, I will, I'll take a 20 at 10 o'clock in the morning, (laughs) but I get up at five. So I've already put in five hours, right. Of work, but I'll feel that, Oh, I just, I just got to have that nap, you know, and then I'll be fine the rest of the day and long into, you know, the evening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I have a long, I have a long history of power naps. I amaze uh, my husband and people in my family. I just, but I, and the, the older I get, the more I realize it's a, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing just to, and not to deny it. It's like other things. Don't deny the symptom. Like just go lay down 20 minutes and it's important. It's important for your health. It's important for what you're trying to accomplish. And, um, and I just really think it's great that you've been recognized for your research. That's something that we got to continue to bring forward it's, you know, it's important to continue to bring this work forward and um, for for outcomes for clinicians and for patients. Yes. I agree. So can I share one more thing with you? you just one and, more. That's we, all you get. <laughs> <laughs> just teasing. Keep okay. going. Well, Keep going. Well, I guess, you know, the other thing as we think about this, 
Lillian Gilbreth wrote in 1935 about the bad effect of fatigue. And this is what she said. There is an increase in errors. The quality is lower. There is a liability rather than an asset. The enormous seriousness of this is quite obvious since the product of the work is human comfort and sometimes even human life as it is often with the work of the nurse. I mean, that was nine decades ago and we still have not addressed this issue. Nurse fatigue, again, still remains underestimated, unrecognized. And the one thing that we haven't talked about is all of this was Uh pre-COVID. So if you think about where we are now and the level of fatigue, sleep deprivation, what individuals are experiencing now, um, the challenges that they still may have at home, you know, as they're trying to balance both, I think this is a is even more important for it to be a call for action for, for all of us to address this. Our nurses, our patients, and the public deserve it. So I just really hope that, again, we can, we can move the needle forward on this matter. Well said. Yeah, that was, that was a great way to end the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Nothing I would add. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Good thank, for you. And yeah. Thank you for well, thank doing you. this really, really important work. Really, seriously. And sharing it. Sharing, and sharing it, it with, with our the listeners. Rest of them. And, yeah. yeah. And the it's world. awesome. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about it. So yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's always good to see you. We can see you. No one else can see you, but <laughs> we can see her. <laughs> well, great seeing you both, too. Yeah. And Tracy, good luck on with your research. Oh, thank um, you. Yep, and congratulations on getting closer to finishing your degree. Oh, yeah, I'm getting there, getting there. It'll take a little bit more, but (laughs) the end is in sight. (laughs) Don't forget to take a nap. Yeah, oh, don't worry. (laughs) It's caused me to take a number of naps. (laughs) You'll you'll have to let me know if you you decide to uh, decaffeinate yourself. I will. I will keep you posted on how that goes. (laughs) Decaffeinate, naps. I, I'm getting it down. I'm getting it okay. down. Well, you have the sleep routine already in place. I so do. That part, you, uh-huh, you don't have to worry about. I do. She'll take you up on it. I guarantee you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, you're my excuse now. <laughs> Linda says I have to take a nap. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's been so, great. Thank it's been you great. So, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks thank a lot. You. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hope it I hope it works for you. Oh, oh yeah. I'm sure our listeners will be just thrilled, right? Yeah, They're yeah, going to learn absolutely. so much. Yeah, so that wraps up another episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. And for our listeners, stay safe and strong and well-rested. Yes, and well-rested. <laughs> Take those naps. That's right. And we'll, we'll see catch you, you on the next episode. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, as always, for listening to Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. We'd love to hear and answer your questions. If you have questions, you can email us at questions at missinglogic.com, and we may include your question in a future episode. You can find show notes and links at our website, www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast. If you're the kind of leader who wants to help others, then share this podcast with your peers and other healthcare leaders. We're certain if you found value in it, they will too. Please share this on your social media channels and leave us a review in iTunes. 
If you don't know how to leave a review, you can find instructions on our website at www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast.